Welcome to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marsley. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marsley, and today we're talking about alpine skiing, and we have Mac Marcou and Danny, who's one of our youth leaders, who are both skiers, joining us. Welcome to both of you. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I said your name right. Is it Mac Marcou? Yeah, you crushed it. That was perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So why don't you guys um, introduce yourselves a little bit? Um, Danny, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, hi, I'm Danny Evans. I'm one of the youth leaders at Blind Beginnings. Um, I'm a ski racer. I've met Mac a couple times. I'm 12 years old. And I'm really excited to be here today. Awesome. And Mac? Uh, yeah. Hey, guys. I'm uh, Mac Marcou. I'm a visually impaired skier with the Canadian Para Alpine Ski Team. Um, I've been racing World Cup since 2012, 2013 season. And uh, yeah, yeah, I've been fortunate enough to win the last two Paralympics and I, uh, I compete as a visually impaired skier. And gold medal winner, I feel like you're <laughs> not saying, which is pretty important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have some really good success over the last couple of years. Um, I think it's five-time Paralympic medalist and um five-time world champion and then there's some overalls in there as well and a whole bunch of world cup podiums as well so <laughs> i've been uh, awesome. super lucky congratulations that's you should be very proud of yourself i <laughs> i was a paralympic athlete and never medaled so i appreciate just how much work goes into competing and and to have that success like that's awesome <laughs> thank you so you both have star guards correct yes Yes, ma'am. Could one of you describe what that is? How do you see? And maybe you both don't see the same. So, Mac, why don't you go first? Yeah, so Stargardt um, is a genetic disease that takes your central vision and leaves you kind of with distorted peripheral vision. Um, so, for me, I have no central vision at all and 6% in the peripherals. Um, and that, I guess, for me, the best way I can explain this uh, in the peripherals is that it's just not the fact that things you know get blurry and get really like i can't see the skyline it's more so just i lose a lot of detail and um you know shapes and stuff just kind of blend together would that be similar for you danny no at all not at all okay um, <laughs> yes everything everyone's different so yeah. um i have quite a bit of my central um so um, I keep my peripheral, which helps me see movement and light. And so if anything's moving towards me, I can see it. But whenever the central is whatever you're trying to focus on. So I can see pretty good in general. But if I try to like zone in on anything, like if I'm reading small print, I can't do it and everything blurs together. In the sport world, B1, B2, B3, um, 
B1 is generally totally blind. B2 is kind of being able to count fingers at a foot distance up to 5%. And then B3 is kind of 5 to 10%. So are you a B3 Mac? Yeah. Yeah. I'm right kind of smack in the middle of B3. Okay. And Danny, do you know what your site classification is? I have no idea. Okay. But yeah. Probably a B3 as well from what mm-hmm. you've described, I would think. Yeah. I'm curious, were you both skiers before you started to lose your vision? Okay, so um, I lost my vision when I was about nine, I think. Yeah, nine. And mm-hmm. so I, I've been skiing since I was two and a half because every one of my family skis. So basically the second that I could walk, I started skiing. So it was a lot easier once I started losing my vision to return to it again. Well, right. not return, but continue. Yeah, okay. You already knew how. You knew what it was supposed to feel like. Mm-hmm. Cool. What about you, Mac? Uh, yeah, for myself, I actually lost my vision about the same time when I was eight or nine. And uh, and I actually didn't ski much. I skied with the family, just kind of booted around our local hill um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It was cheap night and it was the closest thing to home. So we'd go and night ski and just, you know, have a blast as a family. Um, but definitely never ski raced or honestly paid attention to ski racing at all. And uh, I kind of grew up in the motorsport side of the world and I grew up racing go-karts and around snowmobiles and dirt bikes and, and that sort of deal. I lived pretty far out of town <laughs> as a kid. So it was hard to, for my parents to try and commute for hockey practice or soccer or any of that. So, um, yeah, we kind of got pushed into the playing outside on, uh, on anything with a motor really. <laughs> and, uh, and as my vision deteriorate started to deteriorate, my parents, um, they looked into sports for visually impaired athletes and, um, you know, after searching and, you know, in the same time that I was getting diagnosed with Stargardt's and that sort of deal, my mom kind of stumbled across, um, actually started with Nordic skiing. And, um, I'm sure a lot of people are really familiar with the McKeever brothers and, um, Brian's been such a successful skier, um, uh, on the Nordic side of things. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so we started kind of going through and looking at Nordic and, um, somebody from Alpine Canada actually reached out to my mom and had seen an article somewhere somehow. And, you know, the stars aligned and they, had asked if we'd ever really considered uh, alpine ski racing. And, you know, we didn't really know it was a thing for visually impaired athletes. And um, they'd sent over some videos and stuff of Chris Williamson, who's a former teammate of mine and a pretty much wrote the book on, on VI skiing. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, it looked like a lot of fun. So we jumped in and started racing that year and kind of just snowballed from there. Was it scary to like, hurdle yourself down a mountain when you couldn't see clearly? Uh, I don't think at that point, uh, you know, as I was like, my vision slowly deteriorated as Stargrabs does. And mm-hmm. um, it was just, you know, at that point I was racing able-bodied and I could still see enough to ski around on my own without really having any issues. Um, and, you know, as it deteriorated, you know, I raced able-bodied for four or five years in Northern Ontario. And then, um, it got to a certain point where I was like, you know what, maybe it's time to start skiing with a guide and just more so to feel it out. Um, as I was kind of approaching the age where I could start competing in the para world. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really interesting. It was, it was a very slow progression. And I think, you know, just skiing in Northern Ontario, I had the opportunity just to, you know, really build a good foundation as a, as a skier and, you know, get, the get the head wrapped around ski racing and, kind of what works and what doesn't and just, you know, getting tons of miles on this 
racer kids do in the Nancy Green program, just ripping laps all day long. So mm-hmm. it was uh, it was really cool. It was uh, just like something we we all joined in after I, I quit racing go karts after my vision deteriorated a little bit, and um, kind of the whole family just stepped into ski racing. So it was just a casual weekend for us. Right. I have a degenerative eye condition as well. And I know for me as a kid, like something just as basic as riding a bike was constantly putting my feet down when I got going too fast because the world was just like whizzing by way faster than I could make sense of it. Um, So Danny, I'm curious for you because you were skiing before and you just carried on skiing as your vision was deteriorating. Did you have that sense of like, oh, I don't know what's coming now. I feel like now I do that my vision has gotten to the point where like on sunny days I'm fine. But as soon as that shadow passes over, I actually need that guide. Mm-hmm. Since I started ski racing, as soon as my vision went, started going away, like I had never considered ski racing before. I didn't like the idea much. And so um, when I first started, I didn't really know why I had a guide. I think it was just more because my dad was like freaking out and thinking I was going to die. So he's (laughs) like, okay, I'm going with you, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And so now that I'm at the point that I am there, I have that apprehension, but I have, I'm so like, I've, I've, I still have that caution. Like maybe I just can't do a certain run, but I have the confidence that I know my vision. I know how to navigate it. And that just for the, for a big chunk of my skiing, that just doesn't apply. So explain how guiding would work because I've done a lot of um, cross country skiing and, you know, things aren't happening. The terrain isn't changing that quickly (laughs) for the most part. It's flat or uphill. There's some downhill situations, but as you're like whizzing down uh, a hill, you, you kind of need some advanced warning. Like how tell us how that works, Mac. Yeah. So basically I'm connected to my guide with a set of radios that are normally used for just motorcycle communication. Um, And it's basically like we're on the phone with each other full time. Um, So he skis, you know, anywhere from 10 to 30 meters ahead of me, depending on the discipline. And um, he relays to me kind of what's happening right in front of him. Um, Not as much, you know, I don't, I can see enough where I don't need left and right and anything like that. It's more so him relaying train, train changes, snow conditions, um, and you know where we are in the course it's basically he communicates exactly what's happening in front of him and it just gives me a heads up um in order to prepare for kind of what's happening and you know in speeds like in downhill we're doing upwards of 120 130 k an hour it's just enough time for me to kind of be confident in in where we are and what's happening wow so by the time you kind of take in what he said you're at the spot that he was just describing exactly Okay. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and that you, you guys find that fun. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very. Absolutely. Okay. So in a race situation, you get to see the course in advance. Do you, do yeah. you get to ski the course yeah. in advance? Okay. Um, um, you do only in speed. Okay. Um, in, in your tech events, you get a chance to look at the course. So you basically, you're side slip. You're not allowed to kind of straighten your skis out at all. Um, so you just kind of mosey your way down and it's really just to get a really good idea of, you know, what key sections you have to be in, you know, there's a lot of blind gates and that sort of deal with the train that rolls on a, on a race hill. So it's just enough to kind of have an idea and get a good kind of visual in your head. And then you spend the whole time 
kind of before your race run, just visualizing, visualizing and going over and trying to make sure you remember every bump and every roll. And then, um, yeah, when you drop in for your race run, it's the first, first run down the course. Are you doing like, this is my ignorance, but are there like multiple people all at the same time going down the same hill? Or are you, is it a timed thing? How, how do you do a race with other blind people on the course at the same time? <laughs> it, it is definitely a time thing. It's uh, it's just yourself and your guide. And then uh, you basically work through timing eyes and a wand. So you basically you'll open a wand at the start gate and uh, you break a laser beam. Um, there's two, usually two splits in a course. So you'll break three laser beams um, by the time you get to the bottom and it'll basically just kind of lock your time in and gives you kind of a, like the, I guess the people at the bottom or people watching um, online or on TV, just kind of an idea of where you are in relation to the people that have already gone. Okay. Like the equivalent of your splits, if you were running the track or swimming. Exactly. Or okay. Exactly the same. Um, okay. Let's back up the truck a little bit. Uh, Danny, when did you learn about the para program? So it all started, um, a girl named Brenda used to ski at whitewater, the same, the, the hill that I ski at, and she was visually impaired. And so she was like 21. Um, she wasn't on the team or anything, but she had some sort of experience with it. And so when I first joined ski racing and I had no idea how to do anything, she kind of helped me with it, got me involved. She called up some people and, um, and kind of got us more into the community. Um, another main way, her name is Kimberly Joins. She's a um, former sit skier for the para-alpine team. And my mom was at a meeting at Selkirk College, and she was given a speech. And then after the speech, my mom went up and was like, like hey, could we have some help? My daughter just um, got just got diagnosed with a visual impairment since we didn't know that mm-hmm. it was Stargardt's yet. And so um, she was like, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll, she said it really casually, like, oh, yeah, I'll just get them kind of involved. And then the next day, like, every single person on the para-alpine team was trying to contact us. <laughs> and so... If you're just kind of shoved into this new world, but it opened a lot of opportunities. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. I bet you're pretty young for getting yeah, involved um, in the program, right? Like usually you join since I'm on the um, Canadian sports Institute, like potential team. So they have all these extra different like resources that I can um, navigate. Mm-hmm. And so most of the kids that they pick up are like 14, 15 and so when I first got involved and I was like 10, they're like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how old were you, Mac, when you started racing? Uh, I started ski racing when I was right when I was eight, as soon as I got diagnosed. And then okay. um, I started racing with the world or not with the World Cup team, but I started racing para. My first race was in 2011. So I would have been, yeah, 13, 14, um, somewhere around there. Um and kind of like Danny, I was, I was the youngest, youngest one kicking around by, by a long shot at that point, you know, uh, she's talking about Kim, Kim was one of, one of my TR later became one of my teammates. She was, she'd been around a lot longer than I had at that point, but the team was a lot older. And, um, you know, as you kind of go through the years and it's come to the point where I'm now the, <laughs> the most veteran athlete on the, on the Canadian team, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy seeing how young our, our kind of pool is like everyone's super young and eager. And, um, it used to be a lot more of an older crew. Like, no, I guess I wouldn't say older, but they were, you know, developed human beings. They were not, they weren't kids still growing and, and getting 
dialed in. So it's pretty cool to see, uh, you know, our whole team kind of make that shift. And now we have young athletes that we're working with nonstop to, um, by the time they're 18, 19 or just going to be crushing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good news for Canada in the future, for sure. Um, I'm assuming there's a lot of wiping out as you're, you know, training and, and challenging yourselves and trying new runs and stuff. Are you, have you guys had injuries? What's, what's that been like? Um, yeah, I myself have definitely, definitely been through my fair share of injuries. Um, yeah, crashing is just a part of the sport and it's, uh, it's a really good way to learn lessons. It's a, it's the most <laughs> harsh way to learn lessons. <laughs> um, lots of the time, I'd say 95% of the crashes are just falling over it and you end up kind of sliding out on your hips and it usually ends up really, really okay. But every now and then you, uh, you pack her in real hard and it, uh, <laughs> it makes you rethink, uh, what happened and try and, you know, figure out how to not do it again. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've torn my knee and I have two, uh, herniated discs in my back oh, wow. and I've definitely hit my head a couple times and just little things, you know, shoulders and, um, you're not ski racing if you don't break your thumb. Um, <laughs> so stuff like that just like you know, some small kind of minor injuries and then the back has definitely been one of those ones i've been struggling with for the last four years now and it's uh it's just a constant battle but it keeps things keeps me on my toes and makes me stay really on top of my training so yeah yeah wow what about you danny have you had some skiing injuries um i've only had like because I have a lot of injuries, but none of them are really skiing. It's more of, like, tripping on stuff, because I'm not exactly the most physically, like, Crazy. elegant. And so, <laughs> yes. Um, like, I've I've had minor ones. Like, maybe I, like, slightly shifted my ankle or something, but it's been, like, two weeks right back on the ski hill. Um, none of them have actually been doing ski racing. All of them are free skiing since... I on, I'm honestly a better free skier than, I'm a, than I am a racer because that's just so much of my life. Mm. And so um, the only kind of big one I could manage was it was before a race, actually. So I, I, I've been really lucky with that so far. I guess it's just because I'm kind of overly cautious. But yeah, I'm pretty lucky. Have you guys ever like your guide got distracted and didn't tell you something and you skied into something or somebody? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, for me, uh, I, when I skied with my brother, he was my guide for the first, I think, six years of my career. And, uh, you know, we were we were both, it was a different kind of game, you know, as as later, my guides were all pretty accomplished ski racers and, and were phenomenal ski racers. My brother and I progressed together. So, you know, there was, <laughs> there was days where we were, we were learning together all the time. So it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of miscommunication. <laughs> he had to... <laughs> his fair share of concussions and he would uh you know for example would be in a slalom course and he'd call a hairpin when it's really a flush or something vice versa which is pretty important information but it's uh you know just little things get caught up in uh, in the moment and say the wrong thing but um if you if you took the right time kind of beforehand you and did a good inspection you'll know that they were wrong <laughs> right yeah kind of like people saying left when they mean right but you know exactly. that, yeah <laughs> what about the situation of your guide wiping out and you not being aware that they've gone down does that ever happen <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> um 
yeah, my brother, my brother, you know, as I said, you know, growing up and racing and progressing together, we bound a crash and um, kind of Tristan and Jack and Rob that I've worked with um, kind of after my brother, they're all really phenomenal skiers. And by the time my brother retired, he was, he was very, very good skier as well. But, you know, as we kind of made our way through, he definitely had his fair share of crashes and just, he would be in front of you and then it'd just be a dust cloud and he'd be off into the fence somewhere. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's actually there's some videos online I, I there's a video of my brother crashing in a in a super g or a downhill i can't even remember it was a long time ago i'd say 2014 and uh his, he blew out of his skis but one of the skis bounced and stayed in the line and ended up like catching it in my chest <sighs> oh wow <laughs> yeah it looked really casual but you know we were we were clipping along pretty good you know we had to be doing upwards of 80 90 in it you know, catch you in the chest and yeah, speed open and stuff. But it oh, was, uh, it was, it was, it made a really cool video. It made it look. Really <laughs> well, that's thought. all that matters, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's for the camera. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, has that ever happened in a race where your guide wipes out and like, what would you do, or would you get to do a redo if that happened? Uh, no. At that point, you're just disqualified. It's oh. just the same as. Uh, the same as if I crashed. So, oh, um, bummer. We both have to make it down. <laughs> okay. That would suck. You're really <laughs> mad at your guide. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yeah, it's one of those deals that, you know, it kind of goes like chip or dad. If he crashes, you can't really get mad because you know you've crashed a bunch. And <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. At that point, you're just kind of rolling with luck and accidents happen. <laughs> who do you, who guides you, Danny? Uh, my dad's actually my guide. And so when we first started, it was very confusing. Um, it was, he still doesn't really seem to understand that left is left and right is right. And so he'll constantly be like, go left. And then I'll go left and I'll crash into a tree. And he's like, I meant to go left. And I'm like, I went left. But um, <laughs> I, I have had a lot of, in the slalom courses, it's really hard because he basically has to call every single one because I can't see because it's supposed to like the big giant flagged gate so you can that I can easily see. Mm-hmm. You cannot really see the slalom poles. <laughs> and so when they're really close together um, and you just really understand the right and left thing, it's very complicated. Um, I think I've broken a record of like six poles just in like <laughs> just training, not even skiing. Like really? hitting them? But um, yes, and then they just snap. Like I, I hit them so hard. <laughs> Um, nice a lot of the time people look like trees to me and so sounds kind of weird but um and so um the trees start moving and he forgets to call them and then i crash it's it's happened a lot um the biggest one that i can think of is when it was at the bottom of a gs course and he stopped a little bit short it was just for training and then i didn't realize that he'd stopped and so i tried to stop and then um, <laughs> when I tried to stop, my legs separated like the splits and I'm not very flexible and I crashed mm-hmm. into him. <laughs> but yeah, that happens very often. Luckily, it hasn't been in a race yet, but yeah. Give it time. <laughs> yeah. So what's it like when you outgrow your guide, when you become faster than them and you got to kind of leave them behind? Um, for myself, it's actually never happened. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, I've had my guides there more so just retire. Uh, my brother retired after having, you know, he has a very similar um, back issues as I do. And, you know, with herniated discs, they're 
pretty pesky injuries. <laughs> and, you know, some days if your back goes out, you can't, your feet start to tingle and mm. it's, there's lots of pressure on the nerves. So that mixed with a bunch of concussions and, uh, you know, he had a good run. Uh, he kind of just decided to hang up the boots on the pure fact that it was just beating him up really bad. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and other than that, I've had, I skied after my brother retired, I'd skied with Rob, like kind of in and out throughout my brother's career as he dealt with injuries and that sort of deal. He was like kind of my backup guide. <laughs> and, uh, and then Jack, I started skiing with Jack Leach and Jack skied with me from 2016 to 2018. And he kind of signed on as a two-year contract kind of deal. And that was his kind of game plan. He was looking at retiring from skiing. Um, he was with the Alberta ski team and he was just going to retire as, you know, things get very expensive and it's, uh, and you know, if you're, if he wasn't going to kind of carry on to the national team, it was just time for him. And when the opportunity came to, to guide, he thought he'd give it a shot and um, kind of postpone school for two years and just kind of keep skiing and have some fun. And um, we ended up, you know, having a really good career together, but knowing that he would retire in 2018, um, we started looking for a guide right after the Olympics and now I've been skiing with Tristan for the last three years. And, um, yeah, they're all super phenomenal skiers and I've been super fortunate with guides. <laughs> Does it take a while to develop trust? Um, I get that question a lot and I feel like it's, it's one of those things where you don't really have an option. You know? <laughs> it's either, uh, you build trust real quick because if you don't, listen to them then you're on your own and i'd rather listen to somebody than be on my own mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so it's it keeps things interesting but it's more so just learning how they are as a skier you know everyone has a little bit different style of skiing and some people are you know very gingerly on the skis and they're they just make it look effortless and some people are really aggressive skiers so you know getting the opportunity to ski behind a couple different skiers um it's cool to learn and and uh, kind of take some from each and put it into your own skiing. But yeah, it just takes some time to kind of figure that out. And for somebody that's never guided before, it's more so communicating to them what you need um, for the first couple months. And it's just kind of a learning process. And kind of once the ball gets rolling, then uh, and it kind of turns pretty effortless. And I imagine communication is pretty important. Like I, I did tandem cycling and there's not a lot of time to explain when a bike breaks away and whether we're going to go with the attack or not. So we had to have really short words to cue me of what was going on. That must yeah. be the case with you too, right? Yeah, exactly. We have a pretty specific terminology that, you know, works that I have been using for so long and it's, uh, it's just, you know, explaining to them kind of what cues I need and they learning the cues and it's the same thing. It's never really, you don't really have enough time to say, Oh, we're coming up to a bump. It's something yeah. you say, like just roll bump, rut, like just one word kind of quick, fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of amazing to me that like that just one word is going to give you all the information you need. I, I did one season of skiing and on like, I think I went five or six times and at the end of it, I did a blue run once and there were some moguls and I just couldn't like, how, what the heck, how do you, <laughs> I fell down. I could not get past them. Kind of had to roll past them. Like it <laughs> literally roll. <laughs> so it, it's Probably blowing my mind that you can just say rut or roll or, you know, whatever, and know what to do and, and get through it. That's amazing. <laughs> 
yeah, it definitely took a lot of time, but we're, uh, we're starting to get the hang of it now. <laughs> nice. So I guess when you get a new guide, you teach them your communication. Like you don't have to learn a whole new set of words to describe You're you're teaching them what, what you've already figured out works. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Nice. Um, what about like time off the hill with your guide? Cause I found that was pretty important. You're a team racing, but you kind of need to have a relationship off court as well. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, it, just like you said, you're a team and we spend a lot of time together off hill. Um, way more time than we do on hill <laughs> and uh when you're bouncing around the world and staying in the same hotel room for months at a time and you know you have to really get along as human beings too <laughs> mm, yeah and if, it's a just as important as you know whether they're a good skier or not and, um knock on wood i've been super fortunate with everyone and we've all gotten along really great and danny danny skiing with her dad would be similar to when i was skiing with my brother and you know we butted heads a little bit more but because we're brothers and that's what we do <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh yeah it's it's uh it's definitely super important to be able to not only be able to have a good relationship on hill but to be pretty much he's like i have your best friend <laughs> off the hill whether you like it or not you're spending a lot of time together so <laughs> yeah. um danny do you think you're like your dad appreciates that he can't be your guide forever <laughs> as um, you become. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is my dad and he is a lot older than me. And so I, I guess it can't really be like 20 and him still guiding me because it'd be like 50 something. So, right. um, but yeah, sometimes if some, if there's some sort of conflict at home, um, we always work it out on the hill, which is really nice because usually it just builds up to this big thing and then we'll never solve it as opposed to when we're on the hill that just all kind of goes away and we eventually figure it out. But yeah, um, I'm really happy because once my dad has to retire, um, my brother wants to take his spot and we get along pretty well. And so whether or not it's my brother or my dad or anyone, um, I'm pretty happy that I have like everyone in my family is willing to do it. One time my Nana was like, Hey, can I guide you? And I'm like, um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, it's really nice to have that relationship and it definitely helps me trust them a lot more, even if it's just subconsciously knowing that they want to keep me safe and they won't take me on anything that um, they know that I'm not comfortable with. So what's next, Mac? You, you're already a gold medal Paralympian world champion. Like what, what, what is, what are your goals? My goals are like, you know, I don't really set a lot of results-based goals. Um, it's just been something that, kind of how I've how I've kind of managed this, my career so far and um I just you know try and have a lot of fun on the mountain and um as long as I'm still find myself being pushed and um still progressing as a skier it's it's still a blast for me and I'll, I'll continue to ski but I'm definitely uh um kind of plan on taking a little bit of a step back after the games and um focus more on um you know other sports that just aren't really being kind of pursued as a visually impaired human. Um, so yeah, just looking into, you know, doing a lot more free skiing. I've been, you know, fortunate enough to be around Whistler this season and um, had the opportunity to, you know, ski a bunch. And last season working in conjunction with Whistler Black Home and Tell Us, we produced uh, a short film. Um, it kind of touched upon, you know, separating from gates and train a very safe training environment to say mm -hmm. the least. And, jumping into the kind of free ski world and 
um, the idea is to kind of keep progressing there. I do a lot of uh, backcountry snowmobiling as well, so um, to shed some light on that. And um, I ride downhill bikes a lot as well. So it's uh, there's a, definitely a lot of sports that I, I do just as hobbies. But I think um, you know the more I think about myself when I was you know 10, 11, 12 years old, and my vision was going down, and I was looking into other blind skiers everywhere I could and other blind athletes. And I think um, there was an absence of that, you know, just kind of pushing the sports that aren't, aren't really fitting into the Paralympic movement in a, in a sense, you know, there's your standard Paralympic sports, but there's a lot of para athletes doing really rad things. And I think um, it'd be really cool to have some time and showcase that. Um, yeah. Just kind of bounce around and push myself in different, different scenarios that I, uh, <laughs> that I'm not as much comfortable in as I am with ski racing. Can you explain what free skiing is for somebody who maybe has never seen that? Yeah. Free skiing is, <laughs> it's kind of in the name. It's just, you're, you're out and you kind of take a look at a mountain and you figure out what kind of, what line you'd like to ski down it. Um, or you find the safest route or the route that you think would be the most fun. And it's, uh, it's a lot gnarlier terrain. Um, you're definitely missing everything that you'd have in a, in a, uh, ski racing environment. Like it's very mm -hmm. much not groomed. It's, uh, normally deep snow, um, lots of risk with avalanche and, um, crashing. If you crash, there's, you know, there's a lot of risk with your surroundings. You know, if you don't stick to your line, it's pretty easy to fall off cliffs and that sort of deal. So it's just, um, it's just a gnarlier kind of side of ski racing or skiing that I've always been fascinated with, you know, growing up, I watched tons of ski movies and, um, it's pretty cool opportunity to be able to go out and just be creative, um, with how you work your way down a mountain instead of, you know, being told where to turn and how to turn in a, mm -hmm. in a race course. So I, sounds like you're a thrill seeker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good to get the heart rate up. Because <laughs> that doesn't sound fun to me. <laughs> that sounds really scary. <laughs> That's cool, though. I love I love that you kind of want to showcase, you know, being visually impaired and doing sports that aren't sort of conventional or within the Paralympic system. I, we're all about limitless here, hence the name limitless podcast. Um, but yeah, like why can't you just cause no one's done it before. doesn't mean it's not possible. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And a lot of people will tell you no, because there's nobody doing it, but you know, if you have just one person, if I'd saw one person, you know, skiing, um, some of the lines that I had looked at at Whistler when that we had skied last year with filming blind faith, um, if I'd seen another vision impaired person do that 10 years ago, I'd probably be in a different career path. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, just being able to showcase that a little bit and bring it to light along with hopefully work with other athletes that are also doing really cool things that just, you know, are they're doing it because they love it. And I think that's something that is pretty cool and something you can really stay true to is just do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Is, you know, that quote you hear all the time, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, yeah. it's pretty true. You know, there's a lot of really cool people doing really cool things. And I think, shedding some light on that could um, really just help parasport progress in a, in a way that hasn't really had the opportunity in the past. And with, you know, the power of social media these days and the ease of, you know, you don't need to now book a helicopter to get a, to get a really good 
um, kind of bird's eye view of a ski run with drones and stuff like that. So it's just becoming a lot more attainable and, um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully be able to have some really cool content produced in the future. Danny, what's it like for you to kind of have Mac to look up to or his footsteps to follow in What what's that like for you? Um, I guess it makes a bit like it makes quite a difference knowing that it's the whole thing with like you, you be the first one to do it, that's amazing but it's a lot more confident and more inspiring when you actually know that somebody's done it before mm-hmm. and that no matter like you if you work hard you you will get you there and you can get there supposed to it might happen because nobody's done this before mm-hmm. um yeah it's definitely helped a lot danny what are your goals so whether or not i go into the hope um paralympic like traveling around the world i want to do that um my original goal was like when i'm 16 i'm gonna leave as soon as possible and then get out of here and go <laughs> do whatever but um whatever it is i know that i'm gonna keep on skiing since i have had some doubts in the past and even now with like well other people have done it but this could go wrong and this could go wrong and i'm a warrior so um warrior not a warrior no um but <laughs> i have different goals but I know that no matter what goal or route I take, I'm always going to keep on skiing and hopefully ski racing. And having people like Mac who have done it before helps a lot. How has COVID impacted training for 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 both of you? It hasn't like for dryland training. That was the big thing. Um, training in the fall, we go down twice a week for an hour and a half on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, to we used to go to a school and do the gym, but we couldn't do that anymore. And so it was like the end of November, beginning of December, and we were training outside in the cold by the lake mm. with like wind blowing and everything. That was kind of hard. Um, there have been some days that have just been kind of canceled with ski racing because like they're supposed to be the usual meetings, but then they're canceled. But it hasn't really affected it that much since we, we always do just do that at home anyways. And it's not as if we meet. It's not as if we're at the level like Mac where, we, where it's that much more intense. It's more just make sure you're fit and then just go ski and right. almost outdoors anyways. So it hasn't yeah. been that difficult. Okay. What about you, Mac? Um, yeah, COVID's definitely impacted um, my life as, as a ski racer on the World Cup for sure. It's It's been a pretty crazy year. Um, you know, last year in March, we were heading to Norway um, to have like a test event for our world championships that had were supposed to be this season. <laughs> and uh and, you know, we got sent home right pretty much right after we got there. And from there on, it's just been, you know, constantly adapting and evolving with, with the way and the circumstance that the world's in right now. And, um, you know, from there, we went home and normally we would spend, uh, we'd move to Whistler and have a basically dry land focused summer. And we all centralized here. We train in the gym every day and, uh, and really, you know, put in work at the beginning of the season to, kind of correct old injuries and stuff like that, that you've been managing all season and kind of get the body back healthy. And then by June, you're running wide open in a dry land focused program and trying to get strong and kind of end off the summer stronger than you were the year before, just in a better physical state. And uh, yeah, I didn't have the opportunity to get out to Whistler until, until after Canada day. I think I showed up here on the 5th of July and uh I had been fortunate enough that over the years of training, I had, you know, slowly 
um, purchase gym equipment just because I live so far out of town. And when I am back home in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, it's, um, it's really hard for me to be able to get around and be able to get to the gym compared to when I was in high school and I could train after school and get picked up before, you know, my parents get off work at five, six o'clock. And, um, yeah, so I had, I had some resources at home and we did the best we could with what we had. We still worked with our SNC coach full time and built programs around the equipment that we had and kind of just did what we could. And then, you know, rolling into the summer, we were finally able to get back into the gym in July and into August. And, um, usually we would be heading down to South America in August and, um, you know, get in a good three weeks to a month on snow down there. Um, but with COVID, we weren't able to do that. Mm -hmm. We ended up kind of just, just taking a step back at the beginning of the season, hoping that, you know, we would have the opportunity to race and, um, really with it being so variable and nobody really knowing what was going to happen next week compared to how do you make a plan for what's happening next month or three months down the road. <laughs> um, so we just, yeah, we trained in Canada. I had uh, a little bit knee surgery to get, you know, just some minor, minor pesky stuff taken care of. And um, it was pretty cool having the opportunity to do that. And normally in a season building up to world championships, you wouldn't, and it's something I'd have to kind of leave on the back burner until after the games. Um, so yeah, for me, it gave me the opportunity to kind of take care of my body and be in a really good spot. And then rolling into November, I was back on snow and did a return to snow after, you know, my knee had healed up a little bit. And, um, we ended up training, <laughs> I don't know, nine, nine weeks or so in Panorama. Um, usually we spend our preseason there, but it's usually about two and a half, three weeks. And, um, you know, we just stretched it out this year without being able to go over to Europe. And, um, some of the athletes had the opportunity to go over to Sasfe in switzerland at the beginning of october and this was at the same time that i just had my knee fixed so that was out of the question for me and and we had banked on kind of going racing um rolling into december and into january but um with you know covid spiking after after christmas and new years and we uh made the conscious decision to stay home and um train here i think we have such a great training environment and um, between Panorama and Kimberly and in Whistler, we have all the resources we need to kind of stay on top of things. And we ended up just kind of, <laughs> you know, creating competition within the team the best we could. And, um, yeah, it's definitely a weird season. I don't think I've ever gone a full season without competing in my career over the last eight, nine years. And, um, it's, it's been interesting though, like having the opportunity to step back and do a lot more free skiing and, um, do it a fair amount of snowmobiling as well and it's not something that's usually <laughs> very prominent in the world championships here so mm -hmm. it's uh it's been pretty cool to have the opportunity to kind of take time for myself a little bit as well and uh and now we're kind of gearing up we're in the middle of a dryland camp here in whistler which is you know it's not very normal <laughs> it's supposed to be race season we're supposed to be normally be somewhere overseas and uh now we're already getting a head start on on the summer so it's uh been different but it's been an interesting experience overall and i think um, when we do get time to go back over and you know jump back in uh in a race environment with the team's in a really good spot and we're all going to be ready to to throw down it's uh it's just a matter of letting things settle down a little bit and letting the world kind of get back a little bit to a more normal state i don't know what that means anymore but <laughs> it's mm, uh yeah it's just, yeah, you know, give, give the world time to rest. And when we have, you know, 
it's going to be safe to go racing. We're, uh, we're going to be ready. Has it been hard to stay motivated, not having a race to kind of, you know, push you? Um, it hasn't, it hasn't. I think for a lot of athletes, it has, um, for myself, it's, it's, I've been racing enough over the last couple of years that I, I'm confident that when we do get to race, it's okay. Compared to, you know, a lot of athletes use competition as a good basis of where you're sitting. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could, I could be totally wrong and I could just go and get absolutely hammered when we get back into World Cups. But, uh, I think just being in a good mindset and, um, it's definitely been ups and downs for sure, but it's, uh, you know, mainly positive. And I think working with a team as cool as C past, we have such a great crew that it's, it's been a blast. We made the best of it. And I think, um, yeah, I don't, I don't have any issues with the way that, you know, decisions have been made over the year. Well, I hope that, yeah, everything's back to normal for next season and you'll be winning medals again soon. (laughs) Yeah. I hope they're at least racing. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me today. This has been really interesting. I've learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have too. Um, Yeah. Thanks for being here. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out. Um, Thanks for having me too. Awesome. You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcellet. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic, please send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. And please join us again next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.